Hi, I'm Tim Rood, Head of Government and Industry Relations here at Citus AMC. Welcome to the latest edition of On the Hill. So my very special guest today is none other than Sheila Bear. Now, Sheila, I'm going to try to give your bio, and I admit I approached this from an interview that you had before because I thought it was the, probably the best and most succinct, given your exhaustive history, of course, your professional history. So Sheila served as the, the chairman of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, FDIC, from 2006 through July 2011. So obviously she presided over one of the most tumultuous periods in history of the nation's banking system, working to boost public confidence and secure the stability of the financial system. She's been a leading advocate, an innovator of policies and the doctrine of too big to fail, here, here, and taxpayer bailouts, here, here again, student lending and financial regulation and education. Uh, Sheila's been lauded in editorials ranging from the New York Times to the Wall Street Journal for her advocacy of the public interest, and in the words of Time Magazine, being the little guy's protector in chief. She's received numerous honors, including the John F. Kennedy Profiles and Courage Award, being twice named by Forbes Magazine as the second most powerful woman in the world, and appearing on the cover of Time Magazine. In 2011, she was named by Harvard University and the Washington Post Magazine as one of seven of America's top leaders. Welcome, Sheila. Thank you, Tim. That was quite an introduction. I appreciate it. Oh, yeah. Like I said, I poached it, so I, I should footnote somebody, but I can't honestly remember who it So here's a good one. Here's some research, a little background on you, which was fascinating and super entertaining. So there was a, there was a fun fact that I thought would be a really entertaining place to jump off today. So okay. given your history of bipartisanship and being fiercely independent, you grew up in, wait for it, Independence, Kansas? <laughs> That's that correct. Right? Yes, yes, that is my home. Now, yep. I also heard that that was the inspiration for Little House on the Prairie. Is that also, is that um, legend or is um, that uh, Yeah, no, Little House on the Prairie took place uh, very close. Uh, yes, the Ingalls live very close to Independence. And there is a, there's a small cabin there now to uh, where people can visit a replica, obviously. And, oh yes, well, we have all sorts of claims to fame. Um, Vivian Vance was from Independence, Kansas. Mickey Mantle played his first Little League game in Independence, Kansas. Uh, William Enge, famous playwright. Maybe a few listeners old enough to remember William Enge was from Independence, Kansas. So, oh, Walter Cronkite's aunt was from Independence, Kansas. She was quite a local celebrity. So yeah, we had all sorts of, of, uh, of claims to fame. But yeah, it's it, you know quintessential small rural town in Southeast Kansas, about 12,000 people. And uh, that's where I grew up. Well, I could relate because I'm actually from uh, Nimrod, uh, Minnesota, which is actually. Uh, okay. So, Sheila, you've been spending a lot of time and energy on student lending in the last, I don't know, half a dozen years or so. Uh, by the way, I've used your student debt calculator at studentdebtsmarter.com, which I, I thought was a great way for people who are considering financial aid for college to assess how much debt they should reasonably take on based on their chosen major, school, where they intend to live. So I thought that was awesome. Uh, Great. There's probably something you could do for that in the housing market too. Yeah, good idea. <laughs> the um, so the student loan market, you know, has largely been nationalized. I think it's 90% of the student debt outstanding is government backed. Right. Incidentally, the mortgage markets have effectively been nationalized, and obviously that's that's the topic near and dear to, to my heart. With 90% of new originations being backed by the federal government, and ever since COVID, the CARES Act, we had these government. You know, mandated payment forbearances and foreclosure moratoriums, which not to sound uncharitable, those were clearly necessary, but they, for the first time, showed that 
unilateral authority of the federal government to do something like that, which was unprecedented. So I've been drawing comparisons between this this mutating mortgage market, I guess I'd say more specifically the government's influence and slight manipulation of housing finance with the student loan market. And as I thought that through, you know, should the student loan market ever evolve or devolve into a structure akin to the mortgage market, which I think about it in this context with loose credit, little criteria for what's an acceptable university, risks of moral hazard, you know, essentially taking on debt that borrowers can't or won't repay with little concern for the consequences, high delinquencies and defaults since the government took it over, and again, those declining expectations that the borrowers will ever pay them off. If you were to kind of superimpose that on the mortgage market, you know, we could see, if you're following that same theme, mortgage debt outstanding explode, the quality of the collateral, which is the house, deteriorate, home values like even higher, as more cheap credit is available, delinquencies and defaults spike, shadow inventory balloons as defaulted homeowners are allowed to remain in their homes. Am I being overly dramatic or is these kind of things? <laughs> well, well uh, I mean, I don't think anybody defends the current student loan system. It, it is a, a pretty big mess and it's not served students well. And uh, it's, it's all, you know, in that list, I want to emphasize higher prices too. So this is typically what happens when government comes in wanting to subsidize something, whether it's healthcare, whether it's home ownership, or it's higher education, the programs are not always thoughtfully designed, the incentives are not uh, well aligned. And what you end up doing is just making it more expensive, not really expanding access. So I, I think these are this is this has also been a significant problem with the, the student uh, loan system and and clearly with <laughs> rapidly continued rapidly escalating prices or at home prices now you see that dynamic playing in the housing market too. So yeah, I mean, you, you do need, you lose some level of market discipline uh, when the government takes over. I hope that does not happen. I do think that, uh, and I want, since I chaired the Fannie Mae board during a lot of the time when we were working on these forbearance programs, that that, that really was a collaborative effort between the GSEs and FHFA. So, and I think they would say that too. So it wasn't that was not necessarily a government dictate. It was it was really collaboration, and we we shared the memories of 2008, 2009, the foreclosure crisis, the mess that was loan servicing back then was very fresh in all of our minds. We wanted to make sure we could get it right this time. So, I think in in that instance, it worked pretty well. But but as you point out, the dangers still exist as you you know increasingly this entrenched conservatorship, the government pretty much controlling mortgage finance in the country, um, how long does that last? And uh, so I, I do think it's a real problem. It's a real risk. And one of the reasons why I support uh, exit, I think it's time for the GSEs to exit. We need some market discipline around mortgage finance now. We know it didn't work pre-crisis. So I think we know what they should look like coming out of conservatorship. I think there's a general consensus around a utility type model. But nonetheless, that's the direction we need to go to help head off exactly the dynamic, the risk that you're pointing out, which would be total government, government nationalization with all the uh, undesirable outcomes that that could entail. Yeah, some of this, I mean, obviously, no one wants to seem uncharitable. And that was uh, the most exigent of exigent circumstances, um, COVID and the, and the lockdown. Right. Just that once you, that genie is out of the bottle, will the next air quote crisis be as extreme and warrant that? And or will it just for political that's right. Whatever manifests for a lesser crisis. Right. 
And you're seeing that, as you point out, playing out right now with, with student debt. I don't know if we're ever going to ask the student borrowers to start making their, paying their loans again. I want the more dreams in three years now. So it's, uh, you know, it's when, when politicians take over, it's just hard to tell people they need to pay back their loans. <laughs> you know, it's not a popular thing to do. I laugh, you know, on, on people who want widespread debt cancellation. I say, oh, look how popular it is in the polls. I say, well, sure, you have somebody you want their debt canceled. They're going to say, sure, that sounds great. Uh, but it's as popular as it is with, with borrowers. It's not very popular with those who never went to college and never borrowed. Shared sacrifice is a tough platform to run on. For yes. yes, 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 yes. <laughs> so to that point, if you step back to student loans for a minute, since that's also inextricably linked to home ownership more specifically, I guess, would be the, the challenges of becoming a homeowner. So your work to educate consumers of financial services actually starts long before, you know, a student graduates even high school and starts, you know, evaluating colleges. Right. And, their and you wrote a bunch of really entertaining educational books on business, financial literacy, targeted even like elementary school age children, maybe even a little earlier, right? Yeah, right. grades first to six or yeah, grade okay. school children, yeah. So can you take us through that work that you're doing sure. in the student loan and financial education space well, and kind of prompted you to focus on it? Yeah, no, I'd, I'd love to. Uh, well, the series that I'm running now is called Money Tales. There are uh, six books so far in the series. We've got two more coming out next year. One's on inflation and one's on asset bubbles, apropos our housing discussion. Right. So they're unique in that they try to look there. There's a lot of kids literature out there on money basics and it's, it's it's really good stuff but most of it now focuses on using financial credit products so you know or just using financial products how to open up an account how to you know invest in, in the stock market and those are fine but what i try to focus on is how not to lose money because young people i think most people they don't really aspire to be wall street whizzes they want to build some financial security and and not face financial hardship but things like just basic stuff overdraft protection overborrowing falling prey to investment scams those are the things that that rob so many people of wealth so i try to give students a very early fundamental understanding of what these kinds of destructive behaviors can do to their financial security, but I do it in a fun, entertaining way. It's rhyming verse. Uh, they're, they're fictional characters. One takes place on the Galapagos Islands, another on Ganymede Moon. So they're highly fictionalized and, and non-threatening. They all have happy endings, but that's really what I'm trying to do. And I, you know, I get a lot of good feedback from teachers and parents as well, who they, and they learn something, right? Because picture books, parents typically or teachers read with the students, with the young person. Everybody picks something up, you read it together, you have a discussion about it. And so I think it's got a nice uh, dynamic for family financial literacy as well. So I've uh, been very well received. My first one was called Rock, Rock and the Saving Shock. It's, it's sold very well. And uh, my, my most recent one is called Shark Scam. It's about a Ponzi scheme on the Galapagos Islands. A bunch of sharks get together and work a Ponzi scheme on the islands on the Galapagos. So they're fun. Uh, please go out and, and, and thank you, Tim, for... Uh, donating some books to Graysonville Elementary in Maryland. It's a Title I school. I know they're thrilled to be getting the books and uh, they're going to be building it into their math curricula at the school. So thank you for your support, your personal support as well. Oh, you bet. I, I thought the one on Ponzi schemes was a, a how-to book. So I, maybe I should read it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, my total Well, hopefully you don't, they don't take that away. <laughs> All right. Well, along those lines, so that this debate around student loans, this is I can't resist this topic on Twitter, and I can kick myself every time I get drawn into it. 
around you know what to do about student loans, whether you right, right. repay them, renegotiate them, forgive them, whatever. But that's also partially rooted in the challenge for first-time homebuyers really to break into the real estate market. Right. Well-documented right. student loans are a huge drag on home ownership for borrowers due to the monthly costs to repay the debt, of course, and the reluctance to take on additional debt, like a mortgage, before their student loans are repaid. I'm certainly in the, in the camp that home ownership is the really the last legitimate source of wealth creation in America and comes with a slew of social benefits. Right. But we both know buying a home, just like going to college, isn't always the right thing to do, nor is renting always the right thing to do. So with that, my question really is, really coming off of this historic run-up, it's not totally off, but on the tail end of this historic run-up in home prices, where median prices were up 40% in the last two years, do you believe that this is the right time to expand access to mortgage credit and or provide you know, financial incentives like down payment assistance or reduced credit risk premiums to extend home ownership? I think we need to be very careful. I think I supported a lot of the equity initiatives that, that Fannie has recently made public. But I, I think you need to have a slow, sustained test and learn effort to, I want to, I'm not going to say expand credit, but be more inclusive in, you know, making decisions about who's ready for a mortgage. And I don't think now is the time to be taking on more risk, significantly expanding credit standards, because we're probably at the top of the market. We're probably going to be facing a recession in the next six to 12 months. Could very well be facing a market, a significant housing market correction, which you know might have some silver linings in terms of at least making housing more affordable again. But to be encouraging someone who's never owned a home before, for whom the payment may be a bit of a stretch, to bring them into this ecosystem right now with those kinds of conditions, I think you just need to really think hard about that. People like you and me who are experienced homeowners, uh, we would be looking at the housing market right now. We would probably be making a decision if we had, it was on discretion to wait to buy a home. But people new to the housing market may not be able to have that kind of background and experience to understand how perilous the conditions are and what their risk might be with a mortgage six months from now that might have an adjustable rate where the home price may well have gone down. They may have lost their job in a recession. There are a lot of risks ahead for the lower and middle income segment of our population, unfortunately, as always, when you get in a situation like that, they're the most vulnerable. So I hope people will be very careful. I hope government regulators will be very careful. I hope originators and uh, the GSEs will be very careful on this because you're not doing these families any good if you're setting them up for a mortgage that's going to be a stretch for them. And in six months, it's going to be the source of a lot of financial hardship for them, potentially losing what down payment they were able to put down. You're not doing them any favors. We learned that or should have learned that in 2008 and 2009. And hopefully that lesson will not be forgotten now as, as we uh, gauge pretty perilous conditions right now in, in housing and whether we should be really taking steps to expand uh, credit and take on more credit risk at this point. Yeah, I, I hear that loud and clear and echo it. You know, it's funny, I was thinking about this this morning on the drive-in was that, you know, ironically, there was a trough in the housing market in terms of values 2011, 2012, when, when the QM standard came out, the qualified mm -hmm. mortgage rule came out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that essentially the government, the CFPB, effectively legislated the credit risks that a lender could take on, which meant really that they were legislating who was eligible for a mortgage, right? And that was at right. the, that in this cycle, the bottom of that market. Now, again, ironically, we're arguing at the top of the market, I think this is the top of the market, 
that we really should be expanding credit at this <laughs> point in time. It's upside down, isn't it? Yeah. I thought well, you it, <laughs> yeah, no, no, no argument here, but government regulators are notoriously pro-cyclical. You're, you, you tighten up when you need to loosen and you loosen up when you need to tighten. That's true. Yeah. Lending standards, capital rules, that's, you know, they're, they're notoriously pro-cyclical. And what you just described is a good example of that dynamic. Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> On the lighter topic. So you were at the FDIC when the GSEs were put into conservatorship. Right. And another irony, you went on to become the chair of Fannie Mae's board about 12 years later, which I was at Fannie Mae, and it can be a surreal environment on its own, but it had to be really <laughs> surreal to you for a handful of reasons. Um, so did your role as chair solidify your opinion of the GSEs, whatever the heck that might have yeah. been, or did it turn yeah. it around? Well, you know, and actually my history goes back even earlier than this, because in 2001 and 2002, I was the assistant secretary for financial institutions at Treasury, and I had GSE policy in my portfolio. And back then, I mean, there were growing concerns about their significant retained portfolios, uh, the risks that they were taking on the interest rate risk or the market risk they were retaining by not securitizing their loans. And then, of course, they started building up these huge private label holdings of private label mortgage-backed securities, which at the end of the day was what triggered their placement in a conservatorship, the loss, the sudden losses on those portfolios. So I, uh, it goes back, <laughs> I go back quite a ways. And so uh, I, I can't say because I had that history at Treasury and concerns about kind of some kind of the risk they were taking, you know, and it, it, thing, it's, it looks brilliant. You know, they were got written up and Jim Collins good to grade and it looked like the GSEs were brilliant. And really they were just kind of, they were issuing cheap dip because everybody viewed it as government back and then reinvesting in higher yielding assets. And that's a nice way to make money when times are good and not so such a good way when, when times are bad. So I was not surprised when they went in conservatorship. I wasn't close to that decision. I was consulted. We obviously had a lot of banks, particularly small banks, holding their, their common and preferred equity. And there were some losses and that precipitated a, a handful of additional failures that we probably wouldn't have had otherwise. But I was looking at it from that perspective. But then joining the Fannie board and then becoming chair it was really uh, uh, interesting to see how the organizations had changed. And I think there is, uh, and one thing that I tried to encourage and emphasize during my tenure was a, really a singular focus on, on mission. So I, I think probably everybody at Fannie and I assume Freddie too would like to get out of conservatorship. There's reclaim their own destiny, but I think they're philosophic about it. And probably the good part of that is that they've really focused and doubled down on their mission-oriented work because they're not, that's where the, the fulfillment comes from. And I think they do that well. And they, they do care a lot about homeowners. And I think they have an important role in protecting the interest of borrowers and a good collaborative relationship with mortgage originators, but also one that appropriately involves some, some oversight, working with FHFA. So... I think these organizations have changed. It was a bit surreal. I was a bit trepidatious, to be honest with you. I wasn't sure. Just having experienced the infamous Fannie culture in the past, especially in the early 2000s when they were riding high, and the arrogance was quite substantial. And the, um, the very raw <laughs> wielding of power, the power they had, their market power, their political power. They had these huge uh, philanthropic arms, uh, the uh, lobbying. They were quite intimidating, and I think that also did not serve them well when the chickens came home to roost because there really was no reservoir of goodwill with the GSEs. They were widely resented, frankly, I think, in a, in a lot of corners. So 
I think they did. I think they're, they're a much more humbled organization. Again, very focused on mission now. I think mission, even post-conservatorship, once they're publicly traded again, I assume that will happen. Their mission, their public mission, and how well they serve that public mission is really going to be the ultimate test of their longevity and sustainability. And, and I think that lesson has been learned now. So I, I do think they're very changed. And people who want to keep them in conservatorship should understand they are very changed organizations. Yeah, I totally agree. I think Mel Watt had gotten that right when he was director that when people were arguing that Fannie and Freddie were the, you know, basically the, the last things to resolve from the financial crisis. And his argument was actually they were kind of the first things to get resolved. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I totally agree. And I was at Fannie Mae from 2001 to 2006. And that was that was a wild, wild ride. Um, yeah, yeah, there was it worked until it didn't. Yeah, that was that was quite a while, right? A, yeah, I mean, it was basically a hedge fund model. I mean, it worked great. Yeah, it doesn't mean yeah. that they weren't still laser focused on mission and philanthropy and all those things. It's just right. that that turns out you can make a hell of a lot of money doing <laughs> doing good uh, work. Right. Well. well, and and in fairness, government you know encouraged a lot of that. As I recall, they were getting credit for buying those subprime mortgage securitizations. They were getting oh, yeah. affordable housing credit, so it wasn't. And they were not asked to look at the quality of those loans, what kind of loans were being originated. They were not serving them. I mean, the subprime stuff, Alte is kind of a different category, but the subprime stuff was really harmful to so many borrowers and neighborhoods. And, and nobody asked them to look at that. They were encouraged to buy it. They did. So I think it's not all on them. It's absolutely not all on them. And they probably the government could do more to take responsibility for what happened. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I, I remember on a, uh, some interview I was doing, uh, they were talking about how Fannie and Freddie were the, the causes of the financial crisis and no. because of their housing goals and because the private label uh, mortgage-backed securities counted towards those housing goals, they, they ultimately became, I think you could argue, were more casualties of the housing crisis as opposed to, you know, uh, causing it. Yeah, I think that's right. There's a lot there. Um, their own book, stayed pretty good. Uh, and it, it was really the, the stuff, they, they supported the market. They were providing liquidity for the private label securitizations. That was driving the crisis. But I mean, it was really, even the mortgages themselves didn't work. I mean, it was, it was the magnification of the losses through financial engineering, credit default swaps, and then the very thin levels of capital these large banks had they were doing the securitizations, they had the exposures. So it was not, um, there were a host of errors, but it, no, it's not, you know, Fannie and Freddie did play the role in supporting the PLMS market, but they were encouraged to do that. So I think it's to say that they were the cause of the crisis. It's just not right. It's just not true. So I'll, I'll close that with, with one last thought. Since you know, um, obviously you work with Hank Paulson uh, during this that tumultuous time, as we said. So in his, in his book, when I think about the GSEs and the mission-focused philanthropy, uh, all those things, my jaw came kind of unhinged when I heard Hank describing the conversation with President Bush at the time that they were going to take over the GSEs. And it, this was in his book, so this isn't exactly right. you know secret of state. But he, he said, he goes, "I told the president that we're going to we're going to take them from behind, and the first thing that they're going to hear is the sound of their head hitting the pavement." Oh my! <laughs> I remember. That. I get that for AIG or something like that. Well, but, really? but, but you know, but well, you know, and this is a, the larger issue for me is, and you know, I was a critic of the uh, the bailouts and especially all the love and affection that was being poured on Citigroup, which was one of the worst. They were the worst. 
but the, the, the difference in how the GSEs were treated and AIG, MEIG effectively went into conservatorship too for many years. So, and then all these lavish bailouts for the big banks. And then, oh my gosh, they're letting them pay back their capital and pay big bonuses by the end of 2009. It was just unbelievable. And that was one of the reasons why I pushed so hard for Title II of Dodd-Frank, which sets up a process now. It bans these one-off bailouts. It sets up a process and everybody gets the same rules. Your, your boards get fired. Your key management get fired. Your equity holders and your, your unsecured debt holders take losses. That, that's good for everybody. Those are the rules now. And, uh, you know, this idea that we're going to you let Lehman go into bankruptcy and put Fannie and Freddie in conservatorship. We're going to bail out Citigroup. I mean, you know, and eventually B of A too, because of their, I mean, Merrill Lynch is really what brought B of A down. That's just not right. You know, it was just, and, and then what we did for homeowners, which is hardly next to nothing. <laughs> so uh, we needed some consistency, some rules around the playbook. And in fairness, there was no playbook then. We were making it up. We had a playbook for insured banks, but these were large banking organizations that had some insured depositories. They had non-bank affiliates. There was just no playback for re resolving them. And now we have that with Title II. And hopefully you'll never have to use it. They won't get in trouble again. But if they do, I hope we use Title II and have a consistent set of standards and, and not this differentiation, which, you know, just inevitably led to a perception of favoritism. And I don't get into people's motives. I don't think that was going on. I think people did the best they could. But nonetheless, there was really uneven treatment of the institutions that got into trouble. Nothing, um, I mean, the best case study is for the terms for the GSEs, Fannie and Freddie's bailout, when you juxtapose it to the bailouts of certain banks, the AIG, the automakers. I mean, the book on bailouts was pretty yeah. well established and written, um, but the GSEs, I think, you know, really were, were given a deal that they couldn't reject and on terms that they couldn't repay. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, look, when it I when it happened, I figured in six months they'd be out. I did. I mean, I figured they'd, they'd take their market losses and, and some of that would be recouped and they would get cleaned up and be, you know, six months a year at most. I mean, I just, I, I can't, I still can't believe it that it's 14 years and running that these, these very large, very systemic organizations are still in conservatorship. And, you know, it's not just a... Government is just not really good at running organizations at this size. They're just not. And uh, I, I think it says something to both Fannie and Freddie. They've been able to you know, soldier on and function as well as they have. But uh, some of the constraints around compensation and uh, just the lack is, is, is not so much compensation, your inability to control your own destiny. If, if you're a senior executive at Fannie or Freddie, and you're charting a course and you're doing what you think is right. And then, you know, you might have a change in regulator or, or overseer. And then all of a sudden, boom, what you're doing is not right now. Now you got to do something else. You can't retain good people in that kind of uncertain environment. And on the compensation side, I'm good for FHFA for, for providing some flexibility there, but especially with technology and, you know, the operational risk inherent in these very large organizations is such that you want some very good flexibility to be able to pay what you need to pay to get the tech talent you need, especially. And so I, I do think it's, it's to their credit, they've functioned as well, but having seen it on the inside, I, I think we're lucky and they need to get out of conservatorship. Government is not good at this. 
And to the, the question you opened with, the longer this goes on, the more intrusive and proactive government is likely to get in terms of running these organizations. And where is that going to lead us? Yeah, and you've, you've taken the oxygen out of the room. There's no room for private capital anymore. No, there's not. That's right. That's exactly right. So I think I said this to you and Jess earlier, but not today, but when we last spoke. So it's, I had to, I always go back to uh, this line from Ronald Reagan when I think about conservatorship. To your point, it probably should have been open six months. That's kind of how it was intended when right. they wrote the legislation, right? right. Ronald Reagan right. was quoted as saying, nothing lasts longer than a temporary government program. <laughs> that was pretty perfect. Yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> Very apt for this situation, for sure. We'll have to think of a policy equivalent of methadone to get the uh, government off the drugs. <laughs> of the <DSP. laughs> All right. Well, if we come at that from a slightly different angle, what in 2006, when you were the, you know, appointed to be the chair of the FDIC, which worth noting that the FDIC is an independent agency who's right. got a board of director structure that's bipartisan, and that that structure has been argued as one that the CFPB and the FHFA should adopt, of course, with Congress's help, versus the model that they currently have, which is a single director model, where that director is likely to change now with each administration. And the idea of a board of director structure versus direct, direct model is that it makes these agencies far less political and more consistent. So with that, what are your thoughts about that single director model or thrown around the unitary unitary authority concept. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so thank, I, I've always, I know it's not popularly serious, but I've always uh, supported a board or commission structure. I, I believe in the independent regulatory model. I think, especially for financial regulation, you need very specialized expertise and you need political insulation because the kind of decisions that federal regulators have to make, financial regulators have to make are not always popular. And there, again, you, you don't want, the political process interfering with who's going to get a credit, who's going to not, who's going to get approved, who's not, you know, you just, you just don't want to go there. So there should be some insulation. The independent regulatory model, I think is one that used to work and can work. You need commissions, boards, you know, they're harder. I worked my board every, almost every single vote was unanimous. It was hard. We disagreed a lot. It wasn't always easy, but I did it because I thought it was healthy for the process to get the input of different views and also, I wanted the decisions that my agency made to be sustainable. And I think if, if you do these partisan line votes, that's not what you get. And, and you certainly don't get them with a, a single head, which now is, is basically a political appointee because there's no job protection. So these folks can and will be replaced at will by a, a, a new president or even a, a sitting president if the sitting president doesn't like what they're doing. So I think it's very harmful I do wish they would have commissions at both the agencies. I think with FHFA, it's a little less problematic than CFPB because the universe of regulated entities is so much smaller. I mean, CFPB's authority is vast and it needs to be. I was a strong supporter of CFPB's creation, but I also supported a commission, uh, not a single director structure. So uh, I, I think it's what works best. They can't, unfortunately, especially at the SEC and CFTC, you've seen this devolve the requirement for you know no more than a majority, uh, no more than three. Usually these are five member uh, commissions. No more than three can be of the same political party. That that has gone into a situation where now you basically have the the minority leadership of the Senate picking the two minority seats, with the president picking the three, and and you you get 
too often politically driven people. So this should be a collaborative process. That's not how it used to work when I first started Congress back in the early 80s. The president picked, now he consulted, or she, back then it was, it's always been he, unfortunately so far, he consulted with the Senate minority leadership or the opposing party leadership on the two minority candidates, but they were the president's picks. And now it's kind of like, you know, the majority leader picks the two uh, Republicans, the president picks the Democrats or flip it, uh, depending on who's in power. And you've got, and hey, I'm a former Senate staffer. I was appointed to these independent agencies and I like to think I was a good regulator. I had some other experiences though. I'd worked for the New York Stock Exchange. I'd been in the private sector. So I'd had a combination of, of experiences, but you know, now, particularly when you're, you're putting people on these commissions that have never done anything except work for a Senate office or their senator's campaign, they don't have the broader worldview that they need to work on a collaborative basis. So I like commission structure. It's not been perfect. The people, the president and the, and the minority leader who are involved in the, in the decision making on this need to work collaboratively to bring nonpartisan people who are expert who who understand the markets and the regulated entities that they're overseeing. But I think that's the way it works. And I I actually wrote a piece with FT while back on this. I was very sad to see we had a bit of a partisan blow up at the FDIC, which broke my heart because that had never happened before at the FDIC. So, you know, if it's infiltrating the FDIC, we've got a problem. And, uh, but I do think part of the solution just relies on the president collaborating with the minority party and picking just high quality nonpartisan people to lead these agencies. Huh. Yeah, good luck with that, Sheila. Yeah, I, I know. Someday, but. Well, it, it used to work. It can work again. It, it used to work that way. And I think it can work again. You know, in the Fed, the Fed's credit, mm-hmm. they, and I, I think part of the, the problem, the Fed's a very prestigious place, but they have longer terms too. I think that can be part of the solution. You know, I, I had a series of recommendations, longer terms, and you, you, you're one and done. So like a seven-year term, but you're done. So you don't get people, you know, mugging for a reappointment. I think there's certain structural reforms you can do too that would help. But I think the Fed of all of them, gosh knows on policy, I've had some concerns with Fed, but I've never been concerned about the Fed being a partisan entity. I've, I've never seen it, this decision-making be driven in any way by bipartisan concerns or issues. And, and I think part of that is, again, that the longevity of the terms that they receive. Yeah, well, certainly time will tell as we get closer to the midterm elections. How well, that's true. And they're people. really, well, but I think, you know, and to, to uh, G. Powell's got a very tough job ahead of him and he needs to hold course and, and the president and Yellen have, have backed him because we could be in recession by November. He's going to come out at a lot of, of course, it wasn't I'm back to the Volcker days. <laughs> it wasn't partisan back then. Everybody was, was clamoring for his head. So <laughs> probably when they come after him, it'll be both parties. But uh, yeah, it's, these, these are very, very difficult times for the Fed right now, obviously. They've got a big job ahead of them. For sure. I'm certainly counting on them. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> All eyes on them. <laughs> so, you know, if you kind of step back for a minute, if you're looking at really the, the ecosystem of the mortgage business, how it's, how it's done this 180 degree turn since the housing crisis from you know, started in around 2008, when banks and investment banks dominated the primary and secondary markets, and now banks have essentially abandoned the mortgage business. I mean, Jamie Dimon was out more recently saying, you know, that the requirements around capital standards, stress tests is causing them to even get further away from the mortgage business. So it's got that aspect, the, the challenging financial issues, the reputational risks. As a consequence, you've had the this evolution, if you will, 
of independent mortgage bankers that have filled that void. And they've taken over as the largest originators and servicers. And since those independent mortgage bankers are not depositories, they're, they're mostly monoline businesses that have some embedded risks that banks don't have, mostly around liquidity, but they're also leading the way to increase home ownership opportunities for the underserved. So with that setup, are you concerned that the federal regulators and policymakers are not being more proactive in addressing any systemic issues with the IMBs, that's like liquidity and capital to ultimately ensure their re resilience, given the important social and economic role they play originating and servicing mortgages, almost effectively being the instruments of public policy around mortgage and housing finance. Yeah. Well, I, I do think, I, I think and hope FHFA is on top of this, but, but clearly that's if, you know, you know a, a significant near-term risk is this, you know, mortgage origination ecosystem. And it's, as originations have dried up, the, uh, the resiliency of these originators over time and we're so heavily reliant on them now for mortgages in this country that it could be a real problem. Now that said, I don't support bailouts. I think you know, I mean, there's going to be a shakeout. I assume there's going to be some need for consolidation, which regulators should accommodate. You know, looking at you know, to our previous conversation of the procyclicality, <laughs> to be telling them now, you know, you got to raise a lot more capital and buttress right. up your liquidity is, is probably a should have happened a couple of years ago when they were flush. So that's, you know, you're kind of limited in what you can do at this point, you'd be catching up, but keeping an eye on it, trying to get ahead of it, you know, making sure the same thing we did with banks where they start getting into trouble, look for potential uh, combinations to keep the functionality of the entity continuing. So those are all things that I assume FHFA is, is looking at and very aware of, but uh, yeah, no, it's not, we can't seem to come up with, with the right system. And I do think it would be nice if more banks got back into mortgage originations. I mean, I think Jamie Dimon blames pretty much everything on capital. So, so I'm going to dismiss any suggestion that the capital rules are keeping them out of mortgages. But I will, I am sympathetic to him and others. You know, after the crisis, I was very concerned about this, the uncertainty about putback risk and what the reps and warranties were and what they were responsible for and what they weren't. And a lot of loans getting put back to the originators who, never thought they would come back. They thought they had complied with all the rules. I think there was too much of that. The government was trying to scapegoat the banks a bit for bad mortgages that they were guaranteeing. So that I will give them that. I think there's been greater clarity about that now, especially with the GSEs uh, on the GSEs part about what your putback risk is. And then just the bashing, the, the bank bashing, uh, which was unfortunate. I mean, another thing that was specific to JP Morgan Chase, when you know, they bought WAMU, thank goodness, if they hadn't bought WAMU, we would have had massive losses with the deposit insurance fund. And it was a competitive bidding process. It was hardly a giveaway. And I think they probably, in retrospect, felt they paid more than they should have for it. But the point is, they helped the system by acquiring WAMU. And then for the Justice Department later to keep coming in and going after them for originations that WAMU had done was just wrong. Oof, yeah. And uh, it was, so I don't, uh, there were some things that government did. Again, I think part of it was CYA on the government's part, blaming the banks and they shouldn't have been blamed. And that did feed into this. And, but it would be nice to get the banks back into this again. I don't think capital's a problem though. They're, oh my goodness gracious. They're just, they've got so much leverage already, <laughs> but they'll always complain about capital on, on, uh, on anything they do, much less mortgages. Well, I, I totally agree. I think WAMU actually is, is a great example of, the, of this issue where 
Chase bought them. Granted, it wasn't, um, it was, you know, commercially reasonable at the time, but they right. were given certain assurances by the government that they weren't going to come back to them for the uh, the sins of the past in terms of underwriting defects or whatever um, that bomb who had committed. And if I'm accurate, I, I think there's, I think Chase is still litigating that matter because they may be came yeah. after them with both barrels. Well, and there, there may be, I mean, someone said their Chase's own lawyers could have done a better job protecting themselves. And I, it was, you know, I'm, I'm not going to second guess. I do think whether they had, the, whether the government had the legal right to do it or not, they should not have done it. J.P. Morgan Chase was helping us out by buying WAMU. And that's just the plain fact of it. And they were bidding when nobody else was. We went out there. We, we beat the bushes for bids. I was calling people. We got probably six or seven institutions in to do due diligence and nobody except Chase would touch it. So that helped a lot in terms of a system that was becoming increasingly stable, a big player like, like JP Morgan Chase coming in, buying it, continuing its operations and dealing with the mess, you know, the mortgages that they had made. And so it was not, it was just, it was just wrong for the justice department to do that. I've said it before, I'll say it again. And they shouldn't now they were contractually obligated, obviously to fulfill well, they assumed the, the contractual obligations, but they did not assume any of the legal or regulatory risk associated with what Walmart had done. And, uh, and that was just, that was a bad, bad mistake on the government's part. And that's pretty much what the banks are saying now in terms of, hey, look, you guys are going to step back in, right? If there's some sort of systemic event with the independent mortgage bankers, I don't even think they laughed to themselves. I think they laughed out loud. They're like, yeah, right. There's no, there's no assurances that the government can give us that we would rely on that would get us back into that business. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's it. It is what it is. It's very lasting damage. Yeah, I used to kid that you know during the during the financial crisis when all that litigation was going on and whatnot that uh, Eric Holder, who was the attorney general at the time, was really Obama's top producing loan officer because <laughs> he, <laughs> he was just killing these guys. Well, well, but there again, you know, he, he wouldn't prosecute any of these big bank CEOs because they were systemic, but then he was doing this stuff. I mean, it was just, it was just, it was a very inconsistent response. You know, it, it was just, it was just unfortunate. Yeah. So much could have been done better. So much could have been done better. Yeah, it, it was convenient. It was really the, the threshold for civil liability was substantially lower than yep. criminal liability. So, and it right. pays a lot better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> This is also true. All right, Sheila, I'll let you go. Thanks so much for your time. This was fantastic. And I'll have to agree with Mark Zandi on this one thing, which was, I'm kidding, I love Mark, that um, you are indeed a national treasure and it was a truly a pleasure to have you on. So thank you. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate it. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to Citus AMC's On The Hill. To learn more about Citus AMC, our company, our latest thinking, visit us at citusamc.com We'll find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter.